Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Steve, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so maybe give me a slight background of kind of your career and what got you into writing and especially the topic of the new book we're going to talk about, uh, Our Man in Tokyo, but um, what kind of made you want to be a writer? Hmm. Uh, well, I went to grad school for literature and got a doctorate, and when I got out, there weren't many jobs for teaching. I always thought I'd be a professor. So the only thing I knew how to do other than read was to write. So that sort of pushed me <laughs> in that direction. That was more than 40 years ago. I've been a freelance writer for more than 40 years. Wow. And I mean, freelance writing has evolved so much in just in the past decade. I, I bet it was a lot different back then getting into the, to the space. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I, research used to involve going to the library and looking up articles in the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. Oh, well. Wow. There would be an index of everything about, say, uh, submarines. And yeah. it would list all the magazines, and you'd have to then fill out slips, and the, the librarian would go into the stacks and bring you the magazines. So it's changed quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see um, where stuff like chat, uh, GPT, and whatnot takes research in the future because it's being able to index, you know, now if you want to research something, uh, you get on Google and you can Google, of course, but then you're getting blogs and they might not be credible or it's opinion pieces. It's not news. And um, of course there's other ways to refine that, but I am curious if AI will kind of help streamline again uh, information in a way that, that uh, we didn't have before. Okay. Let's get to the book. Um, Why this book and why now? Well, this the I'll answer the easy one first, I guess. I, I When I finished my last book, I was casting around for a new project. And while I was doing that, I read a book by Eric Larson called, uh, uh, what's it called? The Beast in the Garden or something like that. Yeah, he's got one very, yeah, it's, um, I can't read it from here, but yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. Well, then, you know, it's about the American ambassador to Berlin, just as mm-hmm. Nazism started to rise in Germany and reading it. And it was fascinating. This this entire nation going insane. Uh, and I thought, well, who was our man in Japan? And that literally was the question that led me to Joseph Grew. So that's how we got here. <laughs> it, it's funny how you you come across authors and their inspiration for books and um, I had on a, a guest the other day and he was talking about 1917 and the, oh gosh, the, um, national society police or some group, American police society or something like this, some, some group that they formed to kind of track down spies and all this stuff. And so I, I started looking into it and then you read about the black Tom Island bombing and all this stuff and all this stuff I'd never heard about it. So it's, it's always interesting to hear how people catch on to something and, and they, they write about it from a perspective that, that hasn't been covered before. Okay. So, um, who was the ambassador? How did he get appointed? How did he get there? Let's kind of start with the basics. Well, he was uh, the the son of Boston Brahmins. Grew up in on Beacon Hill in Boston, the posh neighborhood of Boston. He went to Groton, and then, as his father and his brothers before him, he went to Harvard. So when he got out, it was sort of ordained he would go into business or banking in Boston, and 
the idea of that bored him to tears. So his father let him go on a, a, a wingding for a year. He went, uh, instead of going to the usual places, Paris and Venice and so on, he went to the Far East, hunted big game, climbed mountains, got malaria, um, came home and told his father, I'm sorry, father, but I'm still not going to State Street. I'm going into the State Department. So that's how he got into diplomacy. He wanted to serve his country in foreign places. How he got into Japan, um, he had many, many posts before that, ambassadors to several countries. He was our foremost ambassador in 1931 when the Japanese army invaded Manchuria without seeking permission from the civilian government of Japan. President Herbert Hoover said, there's trouble brewing there and we better send our best man. That was Joseph C. Grew. That's how he ended up in Japan in 1932. And so he comes from a very distinguished family, it sounds like. Um, how important was that just in this time of period? Because as we've had on various historians talking about eras and perception, um, there, there was kind of an inflection point, it seems, to where corruption was kind of king. And then we kind of got out of the corruption era and, and a little bit more sophistication we kind of came um, uh, important. But or, or was he um, qualified to do the task or was this kind of rich stock he come from really help him out? Well, it's a good question. When When he joined, it was not a professional foreign service. It was a it was a, a wealthy boys club. They were all patronage jobs. And um, that's how he got his first assignment to Mexico City. And a family friend who knew Theodore Roosevelt kept pushing Gru's name to Roosevelt. Roosevelt agreed with what you just said, that the people who wanted those jobs weren't worth talking about. They were all corrupt. They were pampered. They were rich. And they didn't want to do anything important. And um, then one day, this friend told Roosevelt that while Gru had been in adventuring in the Far East, he had killed um, a tiger. And that changed everything. Suddenly for TR, he was a, you know, a virile, manly person who understood the values that, that TR had. And the next day he was appointed um, third secretary to Mexico. So that's how I got into it. He was also one of the people who uh, deplored these patronage jobs, who thought they should be eliminated because it was a serious job that required knowledge and experience. And he helped to usher in, in the mid-1920s, the professionalization of the Foreign Service. As we know, it's not completely professional. There's still plenty of patronage jobs going around. But Gru is considered one of the fathers of the modern Foreign Service. And, and take us back to communication. What was it like trying to correspond and stuff? You know, like we're in the age of we're talking on Zoom. So obviously they had you know ways to communicate. But how quickly was the U.S. government able to communicate with their ambassadors and uh, people you know, in the various Mexico City, you said, Japan, wherever they might be during this era? Pretty slowly. They, they, you could uh, send a telegram. That was the fastest way. Uh, but it was also the most expensive way. So the, the State Department was... Uh, they were skin flints. It was a, our, our government was in the depression. There wasn't a lot of money. So telegrams were only used for very important dispatches. Otherwise, you wrote your dispatches, you put them in the diplomatic pouch, and two weeks or two and a half or three weeks later, they arrived in Washington or in Tokyo. So there was quite a gap between um, when things happened and when you got your answers. And how does that impact 
some of what we see in World War II. Um, sometimes a slowness can bring calm to a situation, but also things can happen in two weeks. You know? And so even though you might have thought it was a low-level communique you're sending, uh, by the time it gets there and you get something back, a lot's changed. And so you send a telegram and I bet there's there's probably a lot of cross streams that happen, um, slow communique, then a, then a fast one that kind of got sent some mixed signals. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. We all know that from even now, if you if you don't answer an email in, in a day, people start to wonder what's wrong. Um, well, back then it was uh, much slower. So Drew didn't, he didn't write that many long telegrams. And if you wrote a telegram, you, you wrote a, a short one. He only wrote um, a few long telegrams during his 10 years in Japan because it was frowned upon. It was too expensive. So you're right. People were, there was crosstalk, ships missing, you know, missing each other in the night. But um, that's the way everybody did it. So everybody was at an equal disadvantage. Okay. And what year did you say he got to Japan? 1932. Okay. And so he 19- came home in 1942 after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and after he'd been interned for six months. So 1932, what is life like in Japan? Well, it's kind of crazy. I mean, one of the things that surprised me a lot, and there were a lot of surprises for me here, because I think most of us tend to know more about the rise of Nazism and Hitler than we do about what was going on in the Far East. And in Japan, it was crazy. There, As Gru was en route to his new job in Tokyo, the prime minister of Japan was assassinated. He was the second one who'd been assassinated in 18 months. There were all sorts of uh, right-wing patriotic societies who were killing business people. There there were um, coup plots. There There was political mayhem. Cabinets were very unstable. In Gru's 10 years there, he dealt with 17 prime ministers and 12 I'm sorry, 17 foreign ministers and 12 prime ministers. So there was always someone new that you had to get to know, try to figure out how they could help or how they were going to oppose. Um, It was a mess politically. And unlike in Germany, where there were always people um, inside Germany who were trying to depose Hitler because they were appalled by him. These were coming from the the left wing. In Japan, the coup attempts almost all came from the right wing because they wanted people even more extreme to take over. So it's a little bit unstable. What did he think his role was in the 30s? Um, And how was the U.S. perceived in Japan while we're going through the Great Depression? Well, those are two important questions. His, His initial role was to try to convince Japan to withdraw from Manchuria uh, stop its aggressiveness and return to the the family of nations. His larger goal was to improve relations between Japan and the United States to keep them from tipping. Um, and that was what he worked on for the 10 years that he was there. It got more and more difficult, of course, because Japan was more and more determined to be aggressive, to take over, to take over Asia and to uh, thumb its nose at the Western powers. Before, Japan had been a a strong ally, trading partner, cultural partner of the United States. Many of the leaders of Japan sent their sons to college in in the United States or in Britain or in Germany. Um, The naval people trained um, at the Royal College in Britain or at the academy here in the United States. The army, the top army officers 
often trained in Berlin. So there were many overlapping ties, uh, very important trade ties, especially to between Japan and Western countries up until the early 1930s. And how much is he aware of as things progress, what the U.S. is doing outside of Japan? Um, and so obviously by the time we get to Pearl Harbor, um, Japan's frustrated with some of the U.S.'s actions. Is he, is he aware of that? Is he kind of oblivious to it? Is he trying to, you know, uh, tamper it down? Because that's a tough spot to be in, I can imagine. Are, are you asking if he was aware that Japan was frustrated by the United States? Is that what I understood you to? Well, is he aware to the to the degree of which the U.S. was helping other people or trying to, you know, cut off Japan. So you have kind of the, the, the U.S. is not in the war, but they're doing things. Obviously, it's going to aggravate Japan. How much of that from the U.S. side of things um, was he aware of versus what was he just hearing from Japan and trying to sift through the propaganda? I think he was aware of almost all of it. Uh, his, his deepest knowledge, of course, was what Japan was doing, how they were reacting to U.S. policies. But they were always reacting to U.S. policies in Europe and in Asia. So he knew everything about that. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the things that we were doing to aggravate Japan because it was exactly the opposite that was the main problem. Japan was uh, doing progressively more aggravating things towards the United States. And that was the that was the issue. The United States was. Uh, and amazingly patient with what was going on. Japan was taking over territory in in uh, Manchuria, then in northern China, and then they went down in, into China with the Sino-Japanese War. They were uh, pushing out American businesses. At the time, there was something called the Open Door Policy in China, which was an agreement between several Western countries, China and Japan, to respect China's territoriality, but to allow uh, freedom of commercial enterprise in 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 china J japan started pushing out everybody who wasn't japanese from uh, doing business in china and then of course they also started bombing american territory uh, american properties uh damaging american people there were um by the time 1940 rolled around grew would, would hand the, the list the updated list to the new foreign minister of things he had protested bombings of American properties and outrages against American citizens. And that list grew to be more than 300 incidents by the time it was 1940. So uh, there was a lot on Gru's plate trying to figure out how to keep relations steady while Japan seemed to be doing everything it could to undermine them. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm saying from the Japanese perspective, that's their argument, right? Is that, that they are frustrated with what the U S is doing. Um, whether, you know, whatever. I get yeah, they, they thought that they should have, and they had a good point. I mean, they they wanted to be the top player in on the uh, western side of the Pacific, the way the United States was on the eastern side of the Pacific. And they thought that since they were the top military power and economic power, uh, they had they had a good point. Guru agreed with that. What he disagreed with is how Japan decided to take that influence uh, militarily instead of expanding economically yeah and it's interesting on the on the china side because your the boxer rebellion is just in recent memory um and so kind of china has this this feeling of everybody wants to come and take their piece of china and they don't have the ability to really fight back and so and that's a tension that's still when you look at some of the frustrations from china today 
that's, a, that's something that kind of still permeates their, their, their mentality is that they've been taken advantage of. And this is another case of when they weren't a superpower, um, a superpower in this case, taking advantage of them, um, bullying them and obviously killing um, a lot of Chinese. There was, I was in China in 2019 and that Midway movie just came out, the most recent one. And one of the people I was with went and watched it. And he said that they were in the theaters. And when they started sinking the ships, the, the U.S. started sinking the ships, the, the whole theater stood up, started going, you know, started applauding. Because you know, they're still, they were still mad at the Japanese over that. And that's been a long time ago. And so it's, it's funny, these relationships and how they have tension and stuff. And uh, going back to that period, especially what did. So we have Pearl Harbor. We have this tension. He's aware of what's going on. He's aware of what the Japanese are saying. Did he think that the Japanese were shooting him straight? What did he feel like they were giving him the um the real story, if you will, or was it a lot of propaganda lies he was having to work through? He thought that he was getting uh the straight story from the people that he worked with in the Japanese government because he pressed them. He knew what he uh, but the Japanese people, they're the ones who were getting the endless stream of propaganda and lies. They had no idea what was going on. Um, in the in the rest of the world, they they had one radio station. They, all their papers were controlled by the military by the end of the 30s, uh, so that it was all censored news and nothing about the growing disgust and anger of the Western world towards Japanese actions. None of that was allowed to penetrate Japanese media and therefore to get into the Japanese public. So, uh, Drew, however, he. He didn't know anything was going on. Of course, there were secretive things. Uh, nobody, no, no government's going to tell everything to a diplomat. But uh, he did have good contacts high up into the government, and he he knew what was happening often. Uh, he was the best informed diplomat in Tokyo. By uh, that was the consensus among the diplomatic community there. Okay, so you mentioned the German ambassador in Larson's book. Um, how much communication is is going on between Japan, uh, not not Japan, Germany on that side, but the U.S. side between our ambassador in Japan and our ambassador in Germany during this period? I'd say zero. Um, there probably would be occasional occasional dispatches traded, but it, uh, they were different situations. Everything went through the State Department. So uh, an ambassador is, is he's focused on his on his territory, and then he depends upon the State Department to figure out what I need to know about what's going on in Germany, what I'm hearing from the Berlin Embassy. So I don't think there was much communication. Okay, so then how much was the State Department putting together what they were hearing from Japan and what they're hearing from Germany? Well, they, you know, they, it's a world, it's a world chess match versus uh, a mining down deep into a country. Secretary of State Hull, um, who took over uh, that job when Roosevelt was elected president in 1932. He was his vision was global. It, it was international by necessity. Um, Gruz was focused on Japan. So Gruz often said he often wrote, I don't know what you're seeing. I don't know what the plans are of the United States government. But here's what I'm seeing and hearing in Japan. And please tell me how my piece fits in the, into the puzzle. So that's that was his job. And did he get much help in that regard? <laughs> Sometimes he did, and sometimes he was ignored. He was often frustrated by feeling that what he was recommending or advising or even informing, that, that it wasn't 
taken seriously in the State Department because he didn't get much feedback. Um, and it's true that for as the 30s went on, Hitler became Hitler in Germany and Italy became more of more concern to the State Department for a while. So that was their focus. And Japan was it was never considered nearly as much of a threat as as the totalitarian governments in, in Europe were. And then, of course, that started to change um, uh, as, as Japan got tighter with the Axis powers and as Japan threw, threw in the, um, their support to the Axis. So then it became more, more a different story. You, you mentioned earlier that the European theater, even today, gets much more attention. Um, I've said on the show many times, my favorite show is Band of Brothers. I watch it annually, but I also mm-hmm. watch The Pacific as well. I watch them both every time. Um, and what I think the Band of Brothers is a lot better show, but I do watch them both. I think they're both, um, very good. It is interesting because, you know, I'm born in 85. So there's my perspective of World War II. My grandfather fought in it and he's been dead for 10 years now. Um, so, you know, my, 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 my connections to the war are pretty distant. Um, but growing up even Nazi Germany was the big thing, um, to, to talk about in school, not the Pacific theater. So, A, any insight on why that still is the predominant focus of um, books, literature, movies, et cetera, uh, now? And then, B, is there any connection with that going back to the 1940s? Because Pearl Harbor was the big event. You know, you would think that would be the one that we would talk about a lot more, but but we don't for some reason. It's a good question. I have thought about it, you know. Pearl Harbor is what got us into the, the Second World War. <clears throat> and yet we know so much more about Nazi Germany than we do about Japan before before the war started. I, I think some of it has to do with the fact that uh, most Americans came from Europe. So there was just this natural inclination to be more interested in what was happening there than in what was happening in the Far East. It seems so much farther away in every sense. Um, than than Europe did, culturally, physically, everything. So I think there's that. I think there's also the fact that um, that there's there's definitely a racial component to it that we didn't take we didn't take seriously uh, Japan as, as as seriously as we took the powers in Europe. That was a mistake. Um, and uh, you know. I think it starts with Pearl Harbor because that's the big event. It's that that's what got our attention. And so that's where things begin. But of course, as everybody who reads history knows, nothing ever happens suddenly like that. There's always something that led to it. And that's what my book is about. Yeah. Uh, what's it? Uh, Hemingway's quote, how'd you go bankrupt gradually then suddenly, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, you know it, that's how everything happens. Yeah. So on that, is there the sense of taking an island versus taking a country? Now, obviously, an island can be a country, but just the perception of landmass and stuff like that. I wondered if that's played into it as well. We think of France, we think of a big place. You think of the Philippine, Philippines, you're like, ah, that's some island in the Pacific somewhere that I couldn't even spot on the map. And if I did, it's surrounded by a bunch of blue water. So I wonder if, if size um, of, of the countries that are being taken also played into it as well. I think so. Uh the the State Department and the Department of War, they, they didn't take the idea of a threat from Japan as seriously as they took the threat from Germany. 
uh, because as you said, Japan's a small country, it's poor in resources. Um, <laughs> that was that was a massive error on 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 their on the parts of the of the government officials. And Gru kept telling the State Department, "Don't underestimate these people. They have the best army in the world." That's when he first got there. He he realized that within a couple of years. Um, second, they're they're devoting fifty percent of their budget to in, in, increase the size of their army. Third, they will never give up. Um, and fourth, they're crazy and they're perfectly capable of striking us. And this, these warnings got more and more um, dire as as the 30s turned into the 40s. And in fact, one of he he sent a, a telegram saying they could strike us with sudden and abrupt uh, force. And people didn't believe it. And uh, there there was I have a I mentioned in my book that Gru was informed in January 1941 that there was a plan afoot to attack Pearl Harbor. And Gru thought that was unlikely, but he sent it along to the State Department. The State Department thought it was unlikely. They sent it along to the uh, War Department. They had already considered it and thought it's highly unlikely. How would they do that? Why would they dare? They're probably more likely to attack Hong Kong, um, the Philippines, someplace like that. So that was disregarded until towards the date the Pearl Harbor actually happened. On the other hand, it was always telling the Japanese, if you keep bombing American properties, if you keep taking over territory, if you keep pushing, uh, doing everything that you're doing, the United States seems like a nation of isolationists and pacifists right now, but you're not getting all the news that I'm getting. And secondly, the, when, when the United States decides to go to war, we will crush you. So don't do it. And they didn't believe that either. They thought that they could strike Pearl Harbor, um, that the United States would crumple because we were a nation of pacifists and isolationists. We would come to the bargaining table and Japan would get everything they wanted. And uh, that would be the end of it. What did Japan want? They wanted control of the Far East. They wanted, um, mostly they wanted control of the resources of the Far East. But instead of taking those uh, through economic means, trade expansion, they took them through military means. That's what they wanted. They thought that they were the superior race in Asia, as Germany thought they were, the Aryans thought they were in Europe. And they were convinced that there was an imperial destiny to, to be the overlord of the Far East in the name of their emperor, their divine emperor. What was, uh, obviously, I guess, Pearl Harbor, but prior to that, peak frustration for Gru? Is there a letter? Is there a journal entry? Is there something where he's just pulling his hair out because he's warning the Japanese, he's warning the Americans, and no one's taking him seriously? Well, I'll give you one. He, he was a, a diplomat, even in his diary. He, he, there are 6,000 pages of his diary just from Tokyo alone. Uh, but he expected that to be of use to historians. So even there, he's not slanderous or angry or uh, vituperative. He's none of those things. He's a diplomat through and through, partly because that's his personality as well. But his most frustrating moments, I think, as an ambassador came in the late summer, early fall of 1941, when the prime minister of Japan, Prince Konoye Fumamaro, asked for a secret meeting with Roosevelt in U.S. territory. He agreed to come to U.S. territory to try to discuss how war could be headed off. 
what Japan could do to keep that from happening. Gru, of course, thought this was a very crucial and exciting development, but that idea got smothered in the crib by Secretary of State Hull. It never came off, and Gru, he never quite understood why that wasn't allowed to happen. From Hull's side, it didn't happen because he couldn't believe anything the Japanese said, everything that they promised, everything that they said for the 10 previous years, they had reneged on, they had lied, they had been deceitful. So Hull said, why on earth would I believe that Konye is willing to do this now, especially since he's the one who got Japan into the Axis, he's the one who got Japan into the Sino-Japanese War. He's, why would I believe this guy? Um, Gru knew him, though, Gru knew him very well, and believed that he was sincere at, at this moment. Um, and I think that's the thing that frustrated him most. Do you think Gru was right that he was going to meet? Oh, I think there was no doubt about it. I mean, they, they, there was someone coming to Gru's office from uh, the foreign ministry um, almost every day for several weeks. Have you heard anything? The ships are ready. We have the admirals and the generals who are going to accompany the prime minister. They're ready to go. We all want this to happen. What's the what's the holdup? What is Gru's life like day to day? I mean, in 1932, he gets there. Obviously, by a, a decade later, things have changed on a lot of fronts. Was he able to walk around freely? Did he learn the language? Uh, did he stay in the embassy type situation? What was his day to day like? It was the the usual ambassadorial life, except intensified a thousandfold. He did uh, one of an, one of an ambassador's uh, duties is to have to make contacts, to get information, to troll for information anywhere he can find it. That means luncheons, dinner parties, uh, outings, speeches, uh, having people come to the embassy from the worlds of business, politics, culture, the military, everything. So he was a very gregarious, amiable man. And he spent a lot of time talking to people. Uh, there's there's one point where he said, thank goodness the social life has slowed down. Uh, and then you add up what he's done and he'd had, he'd had like, uh, I don't know, 28 engagements that month. That month. Um, so it, it was that sort of a life. Um, uh, and yet he was also often in touch with higher echelons in the Japanese government because especially through the foreign ministry and also his and through the palace. He had friends in the palace. So he was trying to gather enough information, anything that would, that might help uh, determine policy in Washington, D.C. How much Japanese did he speak and how much English did the average, not the average Japanese perspective, the people he interacted with? He, he spoke no Japanese. He's, he spoke uh, several languages fluently, French and German. And he spoke smatterings of, I think, four or five more. But when he got to Japan, he realized that the language is so intricate and complex. And it's so easy to insult someone <laughs> if, you, if you misuse the language. He thought that it would be dangerous for him um, to, to, uh, to blunder into Japanese. So he always used a translator. On the other hand, many of the Japanese spoke very, very good English. So... Uh, on some with some of the foreign ministers and contacts, he didn't need a translator because they spoke English. So that's the way that worked. And uh, the Japanese liked him, by the way. Uh, he, although anti-Americanism grew very strong and stronger and stronger, it was 
almost never directed at Gru because they sensed that he was sincere in his interest in listening to them, trying to understand their position and communicating it, which led some people in the US government to think that Gru was an appeaser. You mentioned earlier um, the emperor considered himself a god, and that, that comes out in the Pacific or any of the battles that you read about in the Pacific, just how hard it was to get the Japanese to surrender. I mean, it would take a long time, if ever, uh, very low surrender rates um, because they had this divine duty. What was Gru's stance on that? Did he think that the emperor really believed it? Did he think that that was propaganda? Did he ever comment on that? He never commented in the sense of, of saying, what a bunch of malarkey. Um, he took it as a, a foundational truth of Japanese belief, and that's what he had to work with. The emperor, whether the emperor believed it or not, uh, who knows? He probably did. I mean, he'd been told his whole life that, that he was divine, that his father was divine, his grandfather was divine, and so on and so on. So he probably believed it too. I don't know how he could possibly believe it since he was a sort of a mousy little guy um, who uh, preferred to spend his time studying marine organisms. And he had no real power. He was not, this is another important difference between Japan, Germany, and Italy. The emperor, since he was divine, was not allowed to make decisions because divinities can't make mistakes and once you start to make decisions <laughs> mistakes occur yeah. so he was not allowed to do that and yet he was the commander-in-chief the the the, uh, the the supreme leader of the country and the spiritual leader so it was a peculiar position that he was in he had influence but he couldn't he he had a, he had very little real power mm. what was Gru's reaction when he heard about pearl harbor Hmm. Well, that's an interesting story. And uh, right up to the end, the, the, the night before Pearl Harbor, Gru took a telegram that, direct, that, that came from FDR directly for Emperor Hirohito saying, we, we know that ships are moving. You're moving troops. You're moving ships. It looks like you're planning something. Don't do it. Let's talk. Let's figure this out. It, war it would be in, insane for both of our countries. The uh, the army held that telegram for ten hours in the telegram office before they gave it to Gru. So Gru didn't get to deliver this telegram to the foreign minister because you have to go through channels until midnight on the night before Pearl Harbor. That was too late anyway. The the telegram the 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 planes were practically ready to take off at that point. So. Anyway, Gru asked if he could present this to the emperor. The foreign minister said, I'll try to arrange it. The next morning, Gru woke up. He had an urgent message to come see the foreign minister. He thought, well, that was quick work. So he went to the foreign ministers. The foreign minister put a sheaf of papers on uh, in front of Gru and said, we are breaking off negotiations. Thank you for your efforts. And Gru, being optimistic that he always was, thought, well, I guess we'll start again, try to figure something out at the end of the week. He went back to the embassy, put on his golfing clothes, was about to go play golf, and he heard the newsboys in the streets crying, Japan declares war on the United States, bombs Pearl Harbor. That's how he found out. You said he's always a dignitary, always kind of noble, or at least proper in his writings and stuff. After 10 years of trying to go back and forth, back and forth with both sides, 
hearing of Pearl Harbor, of course, your imagination at this point has to run wild because there are no YouTube clips, no Twitter. You know, you're just envisioning and trying to read reports of what it is and put that in your head. Was there a sense in which he felt like he failed? Was he frustrated at the Americans? Obviously, he's frustrated at the Japanese. What was his thoughts after Pearl Harbor? Um, was it a lot of self-blaming or was it a lot of frustration with people that he was dealing with? It was all of that. He um, he felt like a failure because an ambassador's main job is to keep peace with the host country. That's his absolute bottom line job. And he failed at that. And he he about a year before uh, Pearl Harbor, he in fact started writing uh, a memoir of his time in Japan and the, the uh, working title of the book was Failure of a Mission. So that's the way he felt about it. On the other hand, he felt like he had done everything possible, everything that he could do towards both the Japanese government and the U.S. government to prevent this. So he had that consolation. Um, the, the frustration was mostly with the Japanese, but there was some directed towards our own government as well. What did he do when he got back? Well, the first thing he did was uh, send, take his, his what he called his final report from Tokyo to Secretary of State Hall. He had written this during the six months of internment uh, after war started, and <laughs> he gave that report to Hull. Hull started glancing through it and threw it back across the desk at him and said, you will destroy every copy of this or we will we will publish it and let the American public decide. So uh, Guru destroyed the, the copies, evidently, and Hull then sent him on a uh, barnstorming tour of the United States. He gave 250 speeches in the first year, and they were all sold out. And, of course, everybody was listening on the radio, too, because Guru knew more than anybody, uh, any other American, about Japan at that point, and everyone wanted to hear what he had to say about the enemy. What he told hey, what, them. Oh no, what yeah, was ahead. in the report? Well, what was in the report were um, his frustrations about some of the things that the government had done. For instance, that that refusal to meet with Konyu, that was the big number one. Um, most of the frustration was about Japan, but there were things in there that he was not happy about with uh, the way we had conducted ourselves. I, I guess I'm confused. Why would Hull threaten to publish it and that threat be enough to deter him to... to, to... Well, it wasn't, that wasn't the threat. Uh, Gru didn't want, he wanted this to be on the record for for historians. He did not want to publish it and he refused to allow, he wouldn't have, he didn't want it to be published because he was deeply patriotic and the United States was at war. He didn't want anything out in the public that seemed to call into question the actions of the U.S. government. So that's why he agreed to destroy it. He didn't destroy all of it, by the way. Um, he, did, he, he destroyed about, I forget what it is, like 175 pages of it or 150 pages. 143, it's coming to me now. I think it was 143 pages of his final report. He excised, but he put a note in saying, at the request of Secretary Hull. So that's how we know it was there. And he also put in, a, he had a cover letter to FDR Part of this report that, that sort of summarized some of these things that still exists in the archive. And when he referred in that cover letter to his final report, he wrote in pencil in the margin, destroyed at Mr. Hull's request. So um, 
he 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 agreed to to do the to obey orders, but he didn't cover up the crime scene either, so to speak. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned the inspiration from the book um, was looking into the or reading the book about the German ambassador. What was the most shocking, interesting, have you put it, discovery you made researching this book? <clears throat> I don't think I made any shocking new discoveries. This stuff has been poured over by so many historians for so long. Uh, what's new about my book is it, it it's told through the experience, through the perspective of, of Gru. Um, and that's new. So it's, what I try to do is to put the reader right there in Gru's shoes in the embassy uh, and write, write a story, a narrative, so that some reviewers and readers have said it reads like um, a thriller because by the you, even though you know you know how it ends, it's you can't believe what's going to happen. It's it's like the the murder with the knife behind the door and you you see the main character walking towards it and you know what's going to happen, but uh, it's still very suspenseful. If you could sit down with Gru and ask him one question and he would answer it, what would that be? Where's that final report? <laughs> do you think it's locked up in a safety deposit box somewhere perhaps or is no, it it's, it's gone? It's, it is never it has never shown up and people have looked for it um his family doesn't have it so he was a good soldier i i, I believe he probably did follow orders okay our man in tokyo an american ambassador and the countdown to pearl harbor is of course the book we're linked to that in the show notes going to link to your website, which is stevekemper.net. Anywhere else you want us to send people to? No, that's basically it. I'm, I'm not on social media, so there's some more information about the book on my website. Okay, and then any upcoming projects we should be looking forward to? Oh, relaxation. <laughs> that's the best one. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.